Thank you, Andrew and Urson. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, uh, would you open it to the book of Zechariah? If you don't, there's some on the ends of your rows. Ask somebody to pass it down. There are 14 chapters in this book, and we're going to try to preach them <laughs> all right now. He said, Dave, you're a fool, a fool for Christ. Okay, so grab it. We're going to be going fast. It will be helpful to have a Bible in your hands because there's so much flipping that's going to be happening. If you need to use the table of contents to find Zechariah, there's no shame in that. It's near the end of the Old Testament, um, so more than halfway through your Bible. Uh, this is my Bible. I have nice little post-it notes so I get to cheat, but it's right there. So you can kind of see three-quarters of the way through, but use the table of contents, and uh, we will jam in Zechariah. One of the minor prophets, as they're known, and they're not minor because they're unimportant. They're minor because they're shorter than the major prophets. And so Zechariah is actually one of the longest minor prophets being 14 chapters. A lot of the minor prophets are just a few chapters long. And uh, these prophets were speaking to ancient Israel. Zechariah was preaching and teaching and uh, prophesying about in, in about 520 B.C. So 500 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. He was talking about these things 500 years before, longer than America has been around, he was talking about these things. And as we'll see, and we've seen with all the minor prophets, they preach a major gospel. They are predicting and foreshadowing the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and we see that actually in Zechariah, uh, maybe more than any of the minor prophets, these messianic predictions. What will the Messiah be like? And then you'll see the New Testament writers will pick up the imagery that we have in Zechariah, and it's one of the ways that they say, I think Jesus is the Messiah. And the, the Greek word for Messiah, because the New Testament's written in Greek, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the Greek word for Messiah is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus the Messiah, predicted here in Zechariah, okay? So I hope you're there with me now, but uh, before we actually look at the text, I, 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 and this is going to be a wild ride. One of my favorite rides at Disneyland, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. It's going to be a wild ride, <laughs> we're gonna, but we're going. Come on. Seven hours of family class yesterday, no problem if you've got the Holy Spirit. So I'm feeling full of the Spirit now, and we're going to go. Uh, raise your hand if you love camping. I saw Cole do this. <laughs> I, like, I saw that. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. My wife does not love camping. Allie, I love you, but I'm about to show you that God tells us to camp. <laughs> come on, come on. Before we even launched the church uh, with our launch team, we went on a camping trip. That was what, like, over five years ago. And after that trip, she said, we will not camp. <laughs> this is not part of our family tradition. Well, wait till we hear this sermon, babe called holy camping. Now, what is our fascination with camping? It's kind of, it's, it's got this sort of mythic quality to it in our culture, right? There's a new HBO show called Camping. It's all about camping. Well, it was weird. It was a show about camping. I tried to watch an episode. It's not a very good show. <laughs> Sorry if you like it, but, it, but it's still that HBO would put a show right next to Game of Thrones called Camping, shows you sort of the mythic proportion that the idea, the, the ethos of camping has in, in our culture. Anybody been to a festival at the Gorge and camped at the Gorge? Yeah, go, woo Okay, holiness first, people. This is holy camping we're talking about. 
Uh, anybody heard of Burning Man? The Burning Man Festival. Raise your hand if you know about the Burning Man Festival. Okay, this is cool. I, I didn't know about it. I felt kind of late to the game. Uh, a buddy of mine was telling me about it because he went to it. And uh, The Burning Man Festival, if you don't know what it is, it's 100 miles northeast of Reno, Nevada, in the middle of the desert, and they put up this, all these very expensive tents, but they would tent in the middle of the wilderness, uh, and they would do arts and community and, let's be honest, party together. And like this last year, 100,000 people are in the middle of the Nevada desert for the Burning Man Festival. The way they talk about the Burning Man Festival, it's an experiment in community and art. And the 10 principles of the Burning Man Festival, uh, I found this out. Listen to these, because this is the way the world camps, and we're going to talk about holy camping, according to the Word of God. Radical inclusion, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, communal effort, civic responsibility, gifting, and I think that's relating to generosity, decommodification, immediacy, participation, and leave no trace. Those are the principles of the Burning Man Festival. 100,000 people in the middle of the desert camping out, celebrating together. And um, at the end of the festival, the reason I call it Burning Man is they build this giant wooden man and they light him on fire, the Burning Man. People are doing this. People are gathering around through camping to celebrate community and arts and, and all these things. And guess what? This is nothing new. This is nothing new. There is a festival that the Jewish people still to do to this day that's going to be talked about in Zechariah called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And what a booth, what a tabernacle? It's a tent. And to this day, people still for seven days go and build temporary booths or tents, and, and they practice this festival to this day. The book of Zechariah says, we will do this at the end of days when God comes to dwell with us. Let me read you a little bit. I think we have those up here. Leviticus 23 tells us, this is in the Old Testament, this is the law that God gave to Moses, and God told the people of Israel to do this. He says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's usually in September or October, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, because that's when the harvest happens. So I've, I've, I lived with a guy in Dallas named Brad Ayrns, and uh, he's from Iowa, and every September, October, he would go back home for the harvest. Do you know anybody that's from the Midwest? They would literally go home, drive around combines. It was like this big celebration. So this is still happening. We just don't get it as urban people who aren't from the country. Um, but they would gather in the produce of the land, and after the harvest, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, the branches of palms, and the main branch of the leafy trees, and the willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, for seven days. You shall dwell in booths, it's tents, for seven days, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. See, they're celebrating 
40 years after God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, but God provided for them. So at the harvest every year, they come together for this main festival of the Jewish religion to celebrate that God is their God and he delivered them and provided for them in the wilderness when all they had were tents to live in. Here's another uh, passage gives you the same idea, Deuteronomy 16. You shall keep the Feast of Booth seven days. Deuteronomy just means the second law. It's the second time Moses gave them the law because they're a little hard of hearing. So he gives them a second book. And when you have gathered in the produce from the threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast. You see, it's a celebration, this feast, this festival. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant... Now, you guys have to hear this. You think, oh, this is, you know, 2008, what is it, 19? 2019. That doesn't feel very um, progressive to you? That you would invite, one, your servants to party with you? And your female servants? This is intensely revolutionary. That at the Feast of Booths, you would invite all those people to come and celebrate your God together. The Levite... That's like the priestly class of Israel. The sojourner, that's the foreigner, those from other nations who were not Jewish by birth. Praise God. God is the God of the sojourner. The fatherless, the widows, the orphans. Invite them to the party. And all who are within your towns, for seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all of your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will all together be joyful. God is a God. I mean, 500 years before Jesus even came. God is painting a picture, giving them a vision for who he is and who his people are like that is so different even from our very best efforts today. Who do you invite to your celebrations, to your parties? God's saying, invite them all. I am their God. That's the, be- the Feast of Booths. And it's a marvelous celebration. And if you turn to the end of Zechariah, that is the picture that he leaves us with, that at the end of days, if you look at chapter 14, verse 16, and we'll come back here, he says, then everyone who survives of all the nations, of all the nations that have come together to Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. Not booze, booths. <laughs> Sorry, pronunciation. Booths. <laughs> I think there was wine there, though. Holy Chardonnay. You had to be here last week to get that joke. So I just realized how few of you were here last week. Very good joke from last week's sermon. You can catch up online. Okay. Very good joke from last week. All right. So it's the last of the feasts of the year. Um, you have like the Passover which is March and April, then Pentecost, uh, which is in May and June, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, uh, which is before this festival, usually in September, and then you have the Feast of Booths, which is this celebration of joy 
and the harvest and, and, and all of God's goodness to the people, memorializing that God is the God of salvation that brings his people out of slavery and they live and they stay in tents for seven days. <laughs> this is just awesome. People come from all over, stay in tents for seven days, remembering that God did this at one point, celebrating his provision. And it's a bit of a party. And they make sacrifices to God and they sing songs to God. It's like a biblical thanksgiving. That's a good way to think about it. Intense. And if you've ever been to the Smith family camp, this is about the closest thing I've heard of. You know the Smiths? Smiths, raise your hand. Try to get an invite to this. <laughs> Every year, they rent out a whole campground somewhere in the state of Washington. And, and we kind of, I just realized when I was reading this, it's kind of the Feast of Booths, right? We celebrate like a biblical thanksgiving and we camp out isn't that cool you guys have been doing this and you didn't even know you were doing this i just love it smith family camp get on the wait list it's very exclusive invite so uh <laughs> that's where we'll get but we got to start at the beginning so look at zechariah 1 1 and we'll see how we get there we're going 14 chapters just cancel your lunch plans no i'm joking no we, we will get there. Okay, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, same king as last week, this is after the people of God have started to come back from their exile in Babylon. They'd been captured by the Babylonians and sent away into exile, uh, and, then, and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the new Persian king said, send them all back. We don't want to have to deal with them. Send them back home, and we'll put governors over them, and they put Jewish governors, Zerubbabel, over the people of Israel, and they started to rebuild the temple. That is all happening here also when Zechariah uh, is prophesying. And he says this, in the second year of Darius, that's the king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Verse 3, therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Verse 4. Do not be like your fathers. Return, that's the Hebrew word shuv, and I will shuv, return to you. Please, God says, do not be like your fathers. Do not be like the generations that came before you, he's saying. Those who did not turn to me that tried to do it on their own. And whether you've had good parents or bad parents, all of us at some level, God is saying the same. Don't be exactly like your parents. For some, they'll be totally opposite. Some, it'll be just minor variations. But all of our parents have ways that they've served the world and not served God. That they've, they've worshipped other gods rather than the one true God. And we usually, if we're honest, right, we see our parents' deviations pretty well. Like, like we see our parents for who they really are, and we see that they're not perfect. And so for each of us, whether we have really good parents that have tried to worship God or those who have struggled, we should look at generations prior and ask the questions, where have they gone wrong, and how do I more... Um, perfectly or profoundly follow and turn to God. It's one thing to critique. It's another thing to do something different. 
So I think all of us have a tendency to critique our parents, but the question is, are we going to actually do something different? And Zechariah says, do something different. (laughs) Don't be exactly like them. Even for those of us who grew up in the church and whose parents went to church on Sundays, and there is some way in which they're following God that we probably can learn from and do something different. God says that. He says, please, learn from previous generations and see where it's gotten them and see where it's got my mission and see where it's got my house. Do something different following my word. He's not saying rebel against authority to rebel against authority because I think that's sometimes how we operate, especially in our generation. He's like, I'm just going to do something different just because it's different than my parents. That's not what he's saying. He's saying see the ways in which They have fallen short of their calling and do better. Do something different, okay? And as we'll see, because if you don't, God says, I cannot, I will not return to you for this profound consequence. Now what we've got in the next seven chapters is eight vision dreams, eight different visions that Zechariah has and they are wild sometimes it feels like he was at the Burning Man festival and he was smoking something he shouldn't have been smoking okay these are wild so you're gonna have to read these in full on your own because we're doing 14 chapters in in 50 minutes okay so but in each of these visions as you go back and read them and I'll just give you a high level um, description of them there's always, an, and this is in the, most of the prophets that we've talked about this, there's a near view, like there's something in these visions that's going to be fulfilled in Zechariah's lifetime, and then there's a far view. It's saying, yes, some of it will be fulfilled now, but in the end, in, in the fullness of time, the whole thing will be fulfilled. So it's always near view, far view when you're reading the prophets. And so, um, you know, in the near view, it's really encouraging the people to rebuild the temple, just, just like Haggai last week said rebuild the temple, and the far view is talking about this future new Jerusalem where there's a coming Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, who will build a new Jerusalem in which God will dwell permanently so they won't need a temple, okay? Near view, far view. So the first vision is of horsemen, and they search the whole earth, and they report back to Yahweh that the world is at rest, and so... Um, They ask God, or Zechariah asks God, will you remain angry at your people? The world is at rest. God replies, no, I will not remain angry. Rebuild my house. Okay? Go back to last week's sermon. You can understand the importance of rebuilding the house of God. Vision number two is four horns and four craftsmen. So these horns, we're talking about like animal horns, represent the surrounding nations who have mistreated Israel, abused Israel, oppressed Israel, and the craftsmen represent God's agents who can carve up the horns. So when I think of this, it's like these amazing horns, these mighty empires, these horns, but then this like street craftsman who takes it. You know these craftsmen make these intricate uh, souvenirs out of these once great empires. That's the picture here, these craftsmen. Uh, carve up these these horns. So that's vision number two. Vision number three, there's a man with a measuring line, and a measuring line would, would help you figure out what's true vertical, and he's surveying this new Jerusalem, this future Jerusalem. 
Vision number four is of Joshua. If you remember from last week, there was Zerubbabel, the governor, who was in charge. He was sort of the, the, uh, the kingly aspect of Jerusalem at this time. He was sort of in charge of the building project. Joshua was the new high priest who was in charge of sort of the religious faith life of the people. And Joshua, this high priest, gets new clean clothes. His old clothes, his dirty rags are taken off and he gets new pure clean robes. And we'll come back to this in a minute because this is important in the later part of his prophecy. Okay, now we're going to have vision five, six, seven, and eight. And actually what's cool about the structure of this book um, is it's a new cycle of the same types of vision. So vision five is parallel to vision four, and vision six is parallel to vision three, and vision seven is parallel to vision two, and vision eight is parallel to vision one. So it's a reiteration. These visions are reiterations of, of similar themes. So vision five, there's a golden lampstand, and um, it's really talking about how Zerubbabel, as the governor, will help to rebuild the temple, just as Joshua the high priest in vision four will help rebuild the temple, okay? Vision six, there's a huge flying scroll, just leave it at that. <laughs> flying scroll. Vision seven, there's a woman in a basket. And then, and, and this woman represents iniquity and sin. And she's put into the basket and a lid is put on. And two other women come and they have stork wings. Of course, it's a vision dream. And they take the basket and they carry it far off from the land of Israel. And actually, this is why I think most of the imagery we have of angels is, is of, of women with stork wings. comes from right here in Zechariah. Because everywhere else in the Bible, angels look pretty much like everybody else. So interesting, interesting. Okay. Vision 8, horse-drawn chariots. And remember vision 1, there was the horsemen. Now these horse-drawn chariots patrol the earth to keep the peace. Okay? Again, these visions, these dreams have both near view fulfillment, but also look past the near view to this ultimate fulfillment when and where God will bring everything as he desires into completion. And this brings us to then um, the summary of, of this first section, chapter 7 and 8, and there's kind of a conclusion to this first section of Zechariah, and then the next section of Zechariah is almost very different uh, literarily, structurally, and so on. So what does 7 and 8 tell us? Well, look with me at chapter, actually the end of chapter 6. So chapter 6, starting in verse 11, gives us sort of a summary of what all these visions mean and what they're telling us, okay? And this is what Zechariah writes. He says, verse, chapter 6, big number 6, small number 11, chapter 6, verse 11. Take from the silver and gold and make a crown. And that's the silver and gold from all of the surrounding nations who have now sort of forfeited their wealth to the people of God. And make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. Now see, capital B, that's important because it's actually not speaking of Joshua, but somebody who will come who is a greater high priest and a greater king, for he shall branch out, this the branch, from the, his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So here I have a high priest who's also a king on the throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. Okay. So we're picturing this future day through this, this sort of bonus vision, this ninth vision, this bonus vision of where the priestly and the kingly elements of the nation come together in one person who they call the branch. Now, spoiler alert, I think it's talking about Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the king of kings. And from his throne, he will counsel the world towards peace. This is the vision, okay? Many messianic, messianic predictions here in the book of Zechariah. And the first Christians who were Jewish, who had read Zechariah, who walked with and talked with and saw all the things that Jesus did, they were sure that Jesus was the fulfillment, that he was this branch. And they gave their lives telling people about it. We sit here because they saw the connection. Now, quick jump, quick jump, just so I can show you one way in which this works. Chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. Look at it with me. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. This sounds pretty good. But wait. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. For those of you who are new to the church, this is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, where the people of God, or the people of God, the people of Israel at the time of Jesus saw him coming riding on a donkey and, and their eyes were opened. That is the Messiah, Yeshua, the Messiah. He's coming, just like Zechariah said, and they took palm branches, just like we read about they do at the Festival of the Booze, and they laid them down and they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, he comes. Because they were students of the word. And they realized that this coming priestly king would be humble, mounted on a donkey. Zechariah predicted it, and Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Just days before he was then arrested, falsely accused, falsely convicted, and hung on a cross to die, proclaiming to be the fulfillment of Zechariah. Guys, if you don't love the word of God, it's because you're not in it. This stuff, this author is so much bigger than us, so much bigger than Zechariah. He is weaving it all together, and when we see it, we're like, oh, my goodness, it's true. So let me read you some highlights then from the rest of the conclusion of this first section in chapter 7 and 8. I'm just going to read you some highlights here. Um, what should this new kingdom be like? What will this new kingdom that these visions are pointing towards be like with this high priestly king? What will they be like? Uh, chapter 7, verse 9 says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, that's the orphan, the sojourner, or the poor. 
and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's what the kingdom will be like. That's what God is calling his people to. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. It is full of God's presence, this new kingdom. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell, I will tabernacle, I will booth in the midst of Jerusalem, just like I did in the wilderness. I'll do it right there in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. This new kingdom will be full of peace, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. You hear, you hear all of that language of the Feast of Booths, of a good harvest, of peace, of food for everyone. No one is hungry. No one is wanting. Because the Lord God makes it so. Verse 18. There are things that you shall do. You shall speak truth to one another. You shall render in your gates judgments that are true, and you shall make and it shall make for peace. Do not devise evil for your hearts against, in your hearts for one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. What's he talking about here? It will be a place of truth. It will be a place of truth and not lies. Truth and not deception. Truth, honesty. Gosh, this will be a good kingdom. And finally, verse 23 will say, it will be full of all the nations, all the peoples, all the cultures, all the ethnicities of the world. It will be truly a diverse kingdom. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. God is at your holy camping site. We want to go there. And they'll grab hold and they'll follow them into the presence of God. This is a beautiful picture, my friends. And Zechariah leaves us at the end of this first section hanging. And he's saying, will you be the kind of people Israel? This is the near view. You be the kind of people Israel in 520 B.C. who will be ready to receive this new messianic kingdom. Spoiler alert, they're not ready. Are we ready? Are we ready to be a place of justice and peace, of God's presence, of truth, and a place of diversity where all nations feel comfortable being in our midst because they know that God is with us? We've got work to do, friends. We are not ready for this kingdom. But oh, it will be a great kingdom. And so then the rest of Zechariah, probably written many decades later, many decades later, is like this kaleidoscope of prophetic pictures and imagery of poems describing this humble messianic king and his kingdom and what it will take to get there and and how there will be a dividing line between people who are for this king and who are against. And then we get to the end of the book, chapter 14, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time together. The rest of our time together, we're going to spend it there. I'm looking at the clock in the back. The rest of the time there, and we're going to look at this, okay? Chapter 14, behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. You all share. For I will gather all nations. Now, this is interesting. I will gather all nations, and we're hoping that he's going to say together in peace and harmony, but it says all nations will gather against Jerusalem to battle. 
This has to happen before the kingdom can come. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord God will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Picture Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives. And it shall be split in two from east to west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward, and you shall flee in the valley of my mountains, for the valley of my mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a, this shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Beautiful picture, but it comes only after battle. And this river coming out of the new Jerusalem, it's a beautiful picture and bringing healing to all of God's land. Now, verse 10, the whole land shall be turned, the whole land, that's not Jerusalem, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower Henanel to the king's winepress and it shall be inhabited for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Amen. But wait. <laughs> Verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. My friends, there are only two kinds of people. Those who are with God and those who war against him. And the great truth is that anybody can be with God because Jesus Christ is our great advocate and he has died for all who seek and turn to him in faith. But if you do not seek and turn to God in faith, God is telling you that there will be a plague that will strike the people. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of the other. Remember back how some seized the robe of the Jew to follow them into God, but this time they seize the hand of the other and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other and they will fight each other to the death. Verse 15, and a plague like this, a plague that shall fall on the horses and the mules and the camels and the donkeys and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Not because God doesn't love animals, but because the people against God are using them to war against God. And then it says, verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King of the Lord of hosts and keep the Feast of the Booths. I just realized, Augusta, your middle name is Booth. This is a great sermon for you. The Feast of the booth, the Augusta. Okay, sorry. That's how my brain works, guys. Okay, so this is intense stuff. This is like some combination of the walking dead 
and Bird Box. <laughs> Have you seen Bird Box? There's like this weird spirit that goes around and everybody wants to kill each other. And, but they're kind of like zombies because they're rotting in their eye sockets. <laughs> okay, this is an intense, this is the Bible, guys. If you can't read the Bible uh, with kind of some angst and some excitement, you know, you're not reading it. It's like Walking Dead meets Bird Box, but then there's these survivors. Apparently, there are those who do not become infected by this plague. Or we could say it this way, and this is how I think what he's saying. There are those who perhaps have been cured or cleansed. Of what? What is this plague? Maybe it's the plague of sin that infects us all. And the consequences, the inevitable consequences, even if you don't see them now of your sin, is verses 12 and 13 of rotting, decay, and war amongst each other. I think it's already happening, but sometimes it's hard for us to see. So how are they cured? How do these survivors make it through this plague? Flip chapter 3. Flip back to chapter 3, and the vision we have in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, says this. Chapter 3, 1 through 9, this is the vision of Joshua the high priest, says this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. In the first song we sang the rock of ages, and then we sang about a double cure. You remember that? Go back and listen to Rock of Ages. It is a great song for this prophet. You will experience, that song says, a double cure. What is he talking about? We don't just receive cleansing, as we'll see here, from our sin, from those ways in which we have offended God and gone our own way and not his. We are, by the cross of Christ and by his resurrection, cured of that sin. But you know what we are also cured of? The double cure? The presence and the power of Satan and evil in our lives. The cross is both, my friends. God says, I rebuke you, O Satan. That is my child. You cannot have him. The double cure of the cross of Christ. Can I hear an amen? Jesus Christ purchased this by his blood, both the cleansing from our sin and release from Satan's tempting power. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. My friends, if you are not crying out and thanking and praising Him with every core of your being, you don't understand what He did on the cross. I rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Here's the cleansing. With filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, new robes. And in the New Testament, this is picked up to say, we put on the righteousness of Christ. We put on Christ like a robe so that when God looks at us, he does not see the filthy rags, even the filthy rags of our attempts to be good and self-righteous. He takes those and he puts on the robe of Christ and now God sees us as he sees his own son, perfect 
and holy in his presence. That's why we can be reunited with God, because like Joshua, we're given new garments. Let them be a clean turban, put a clean turban on his head so that, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right to access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, here it is again, the branch, and he will be a greater Joshua. Guess what the name Jesus in the Greek, how you would spell that in the Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament language is written in. Joshua. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Guys, the word of God is on fire. It's just amazing. Flip to chapter 13, verse 1. So we have this idea of we get rid of our filthy rags. Christ has taken our sin and we put on the righteousness, the robe of Christ, who is the branch. And when we connect to that branch, we get his righteousness instead of our unrighteousness. Look at Chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Guess who this fountain is? Christ died and rose again, and he is now, and he said he was, he is a fountain of living water. He said, anybody who drinks of the water that I have will never thirst again There is nothing that then can separate us from the love of God when we have accepted the blood of Jesus Christ as our saviors and this fountain of living water provided in Christ is free to all nations, anyone who can can come and drink of this water and never thirst again. Chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and shall continue in summer and in the winter. And the Lord God will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Now look at Revelation 22. Revelation is the very last book of the Bible and we have a vision that's quite similar to this. Throw that up, Augusta. Throw that up, Kurt. Uh, Keep going. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me, this is John, the apostle John has a similar vision Show me a river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God in the new Jerusalem of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the trees of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were were there for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, no more curses on the land, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it and its servants will be worshipped. Here's this idea from the throne where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, dwells, there will be a river that flows out of it, and, every, and that river flows to every part of the world, healing it, because the world has been cursed since the fall. And when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, this river will go out and begin to heal all parts of creation. Not just human beings, but all creation has been touched by this plague, and it is rotting, but in Christ, this river will bring new life everywhere. And it says, all of this will happen on a single day. All of this will happen on a single day. What was that day? What was that day? Zechariah predicts it. It's the day 
when God comes to dwell with us in the person of Christ, and instead of receiving him, we nail him to a cross, that's the day when it all began to change. On a single day, it all began to be put back together through the sacrifice of Christ. And there's other prophecies in here uh, talking about somebody will sell this good shepherd for 50 pieces of silver, which we see Judas doing in the gospel accounts. That's why Jesus gets arrested and he gets 30 pieces of silver for it and he throws it into the potter's field. We see all of that picked up in the New Testament happening in Jesus' actual life and it was all here in Zechariah's prophecy of the way it would happen. How does the grace and mercy of God come to the people of God? Look at chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 10, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Prediction of the suffering servant of Christ who himself on the cross was pierced in the side and blood and water flowed from his side, fulfilling the predictions here of Zechariah, that on a single day, God would begin to put all things back together. Again, the cross of Christ is the antidote for the plague of sin. And those who turn to Christ and receive him by faith experience the grace and the mercy of God and will never thirst again and they're given clean, new righteousness in Christ and a river of life flows from that place. Which brings us to the Feast of Booths at the very end. Back to chapter 14, verse 16. Then everyone who survives, everyone who has the antidote to the plague, they will come year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths. Why? What's so important about holy camping? What is so important about holy camping? Well, first, first, it reminds us that God came to dwell in our midst. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 1 says, and the Word came to dwell amongst us. Guess what that word dwell is? Tabernacle. He came to tent with us. Sit on that for a second. The God of the universe chose to come and tent with us. He did it in the wilderness for the, for the first generation after the Exodus, and he did it in Jesus Christ. He put on flesh and took on his tent, the tent of humanity. He put it on so that he could be near to us and save us. So I think that's why at the end of days we'll keep doing this Feast of Booths, remembering that Jesus Christ is God with us. He'll be with us then again. He'll return and be with us and we'll remember when he was with us in the wilderness and in the person of Jesus Christ. Now why else is camping so important? I think it's because it reminds us of suffering. <laughs> right? This is why my wife doesn't like camping. Where's my wife? She left. <laughs> okay. Tell her this. Camping is suffering at some level. It's not as nice as our heated homes our fireplaces, there's a bit of a struggle. There's something that happens, though, when we camp. I'm talking about glamping here, okay? I'm talking about camping, where we're in close quarters. We don't have much. We just have the essentials of a tent. And we remember that as long as we have each other, 
we're okay, right? This is why camping brings us close. We don't have much out here in this wilderness, just a lot of mosquitoes and our loved ones. And for Israel, they remember, and if all we have is each other and these tents, but God is here, that's enough. That's more than we could ever ask for. We don't need all these other things. Heaven is not great. The new heavens and the new Jerusalem and the new earth, they're not great because we have really nice houses and really nice stuff. They're great because God is with us. And how do we remember that? Sometimes we have to get away from all the accoutrement and see what's truly important. Is God with you? This is why I think we'll be holy camping for all eternity. God has come to dwell with us, and we remember that, and we remember all that he's given to us, and we eat good food, and we drink good wine, and we sing songs to God because he's in our presence. We actually sing to him, and we remember what he's done, and we talk about what he's done, and we celebrate. That is the Feast of Booths. That is holy camping, and it gives great glory and honor to the value and worth of Jesus Christ. If we have nothing else, but we have him, we have everything. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wild ride that is Zechariah. We thank you that you've predicted that you would come and be in our presence once again, that you would not remain far from us, but if we turn to you, if we, if we turn back to you, you will turn back to us and you will come and you will dwell with us like you did in the wilderness and you did it again in Jesus Christ. And you will do it again on that day when you come back and establish your kingdom and you remove the plague from the earth, you scatter away all that does not want to be a part of your kingdom so that your people can come year after year and remember who you are, that you are with them, and sing songs of joy and celebrate and be full and know that you are enough. God, we pray that for ourselves, that we know that you are enough. God, no matter where we are, no matter what we do not have, if we have you, God, remind us we have everything. God, meet us in that place wherever we're at and remind us this truth. We have everything in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.